Well, if you checked out the title for today's episode, you know it's about speechifying, how to write it, how to give it, and how to make sure people don't fall asleep. But you're also going to learn a couple other things as well, like should Aaron Sorkin give the keynote address at the 2020 Democratic National Convention? Why do they play Sweet Caroline before the bottom of the eighth inning at every home Red Sox game? And when Barack Obama sings Disco Inferno, does he stay on key? I'm Michael Sheehan, and this is Politics as Unusual. It has been called the number one fear of the average person. No, not snakes. That's only number six. Death, uh-uh, number four. It's not even being trapped in an elevator with Ann Coulter, although personally that's my number one. No, the number one fear of the average person from all the studies I saw at work or at the stump is simply talking, talking in front of other people. Look, if you're going to get involved in campaigns, you're going to be getting involved in a lot of speeches. And I mean a lot of speeches. Now, sometimes if you're going to run, you're going to have to write the speech that you give yourself. Sometimes someone else is going to write a speech that you have to give. And sometimes you're going to have to write a speech for someone else. Now, even if you're allergic to this idea of running for office, that is, you're sane, you're probably still going to have to talk at work, do a presentation, something like a PowerPoint, something like a keynote. And even if you manage to avoid all of those, you're certainly going to have to give a toast at a friend's wedding or somebody's birthday or a bar mitzvah. So you're going to need today's podcast. Now, forget Dale Carnegie. My apologies to Dale and anyone else from his family who is out there. But it has changed. My guest knows this, and I know this. Now, I know this because I've learned the hard way. Uh, I've been in politics for a while. I've coached every Democratic National Convention since 1988. I've done 16 states of the union, four inaugural addresses, and I don't want to count how many corporate yada, yada, yadas. But I'm being joined today by a friend and a guest, and you should know her from several ways. Some of you will know her as a staff writer for The New Yorker. Some of you will know her as the author of The Orchid Thief, which was later adapted into the movie adaptation with Meryl Streep, and we will be telling stories about that later. One of my favorite books, Rin Tin Tin. Love that. She is also the host of her own podcast, Cry Babies, and that is my friend Susan Orlean. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm great. I'm ha- really happy to be here with you, and I like talking about talking, so this is a perfect situation for me. Actually, one of my favorite pieces of yours, and I don't think you know this, is one that you talked on NPR years ago. You revealed the secret of why do the Red Sox play Sweet Caroline in the seventh inning. This was a case of true investigative journalism because nobody seemed to know the answer. And it was so much fun to do, actually. And it's a case of the kinds of stories that I love the most, of taking something quite familiar and looking at it a little more deeply and coming up with the answer for why it exists or why it functions the way it does. And you shot down the most popular theory that I ever heard that was in honor of Caroline Kennedy, and you did massive investigative reporting, and your result was, if I can get you to reveal the secret? It was, uh, oh, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe this will will really deflate the sense of mystery that so many people share. But it it was the daughter of 
the music director for the Red Sox, who just made the choice because his own daughter was named Caroline. All of the wonderful theories about Caroline Kennedy and so on and so forth, unfortunately, boil down to something really very simple. Parent playing for the daughter. Exactly. Well, listen, when I get involved in this idea of speeches, I'm always struck between the difference between we write something for somebody to read with their eyes and write something that we talk out loud for somebody to listen to. And the difference between the two is massive. Now, you write and you talk and walk at the same time. And chew gum occasionally. What's the difference? I actually look at them as being more coherent than separate. And one of the tips that I give to people when they're writing is that they should read everything out loud. My feeling is that reading should feel as if it is animated the way a conversation would be. That the best writing feels as if someone is talking to you and, and you feel the voice and you, you sense the storyteller behind it. So in a way I, I feel like writing for the page should feel the same as writing to be spoken I spend a lot of time when I'm working um, reading my pieces out loud, and sometimes it's a very (laughs) uncomfortable feeling and very humbling, yes. Um, And when you get to points that are kind of boring and you don't feel like reading them, you think, "Uh uh-oh, that's not a very good sign. And if it bores you, what's it going to do to the reader? And moreover, if it's boring to you to read out loud, just imagine how boring it is to have it sitting on a page. So... I actually think the the primary goal of your writing should be to imagine it being spoken out loud and conveyed in that very direct, mm-hmm. intimate way. And that being on the page is just an easy way to disseminate this oral yeah. tradition. Yeah. Um, one of the things I do when I do a guest class at a school is one of my favorite speeches one of my top three favorite speeches of the 20th century was the impromptu eulogy that, or speech on the announcement of Martin Luther King's death by Bobby Kennedy. Now, on the way there, he got the news of what happened. I believe this was in Toledo, Ohio. And it was on the way, he gets the news, says, well, this written speech isn't going to hold. And he gives, I think, one of the great speeches of the 20th century to this day when I play it back and I hear it, I cry. But if you listen to, excuse me, if you read it, it's nonsensical. Right. It's disjointed. Where's the noun? Where's the Where's the verb? Uh, there must be an object here someplace. So that was always one that has struck me as the biggest gap between the way you read it. You go, well, this is bupkis. But then when you hear it, again, it's cry time. Yeah, I just reread that the other day when you and I were talking in advance of the show, and it was interesting because I couldn't imagine him writing that down, except that it was just this gush of emotion yeah. and authentic response to the shocking news. Mm-hmm. So it was written as if it were being spoken. It, it's almost as if he just started talking and someone transcribed what he was saying rather than having... And I do think when you're writing, 
the worst thing that can happen is to get jammed up with those feelings of structure and sentence organ. I mean, obviously, your your writing has to be grammatical and it has to make sense. Unless you're in the White House, right? right. In that case, it just out the window. There, there's there are no rules, <laughs> but the best writing doesn't have a filter between the way you think it and express it and the page. There's a transparency between the way you would say it out loud. That's why I often say to people, too, when they're writing and they're just stuck, Mm -hmm. find someone who's willing to listen to you and tell them what you're trying to say. (laughs) Pay them if you must. (laughs) But I say a spouse is usually the best sucker in this case. And... Say it out loud, express it, say it authentically, and yeah. and from there you begin seeing the way the story has shape yeah. and makes sense. Springboard off that. Getting started is so hard. Ugh. I had a playwright teacher years ago, a guy by the name of Bobby Oletta. Bobby, if you're out there, thank you very much. I still <laughs> take your advice. He said, the first thing to do is sit down, and if it's a typewriter or a keyboard, write something. Even if it's the quick brown dog jumped over the lazy black fox, whatever it is, scribbling on the page, but never look at a blank page, never look at a blank piece of paper because you'll freeze. And it's terrifying looking Mm. at when I, I recently finished a book, I remember vividly sitting down to start the book, looking at the blank computer screen and thinking at some point, an entire book is going to be here, impossible. It just, it's so daunting. And this made me think of years ago when I decided that I I had never been a runner, but I thought I, I want to start running. I think it's good exercise and I'm, I'm going to do it. I got a book um, and I wish I could remember the author because I owe him a great deal. Yeah. His theory was, don't sit there thinking, I'm going to run six miles, because it's so daunting that what you'll do is get into bed, get a giant bag of Kit Kats, and eat them, because it's it's simply too frightening to imagine doing something so big. Mm-hmm. Instead, he says, just put on your running clothes. Don't even think about running. Just put on what you would wear if you were running, and if you end up Putting them on and taking them off, that's okay. But 99% of the time, you put them on, and then once you have them on, you think, well, maybe I'll I'll just go out for five right. minutes. Or, right. No, maybe I'll go for 10. You go for 10, and then you think, well, maybe as long as I'm warmed up, I'll, I'll go for what another 10. So you write a sentence, it turns into a paragraph, paragraph turns into a page, page yeah. turns into a chapter. Absolutely. And moreover, the great liberation of writing on a computer, and certainly when I started my career, I was writing on a typewriter, and the idea of throwing stuff out was like, oh, I have to go get another piece of paper, and I have to start all over again. There is something magical and fluid about writing on a computer and throw, we used to call it a vomit draft. It was just put something out there and you can always erase it and no one will ever know how bad it was. You know, it's funny you talk vomit. When I work with my corporate clients, I always say most speeches I hear is just informational vomit. They just open up their mouths and out comes this torrent. One of the things that I try to get my 
people to do is rather than outline, because outlines let you get away with murder. You know, you can put hmm. anything next to Roman numeral one, two, three, and four. It just doesn't make any difference. I try to get them to do a storyline, sort of just the plot summary from beginning to end. No more than, no less than four sentences, no more than six. And I prove it to them this way. I say, look, let's take Hamlet, one of Shakespeare's longest plays, five full acts, uncut, on stage, about four hours and 17 minutes. Ready? Hamlet's really depressed because his father died and his mother married an uncle who now becomes the king. Goes through his father, shows up and says, I didn't die, I was killed by your uncle and you've got to take revenge. Hamlet doesn't know what the hell to do, drives a whole bunch of people crazy, including himself, decides to take revenge, gets a whole bunch of people killed, including himself. Thank you very much. I gave you Hamlet in four sentences. <laughs> That's great. So just that. Just start it. Yeah. Just start it. Well, I also, I think sometimes it's very useful to rely on physical manifestation of what you're trying to do. So when I start to write, whether it's a talk I'm going to give or a story I'm going to write, I write on index cards, those big index cards, I think they're five by seven, chunks of ideas And I'm not trying to write them in a polished way, a finished way. I'm just idea, idea, idea. And I move them around. And I like that they're physical, um, which is really different from working it out on a computer. I find it more helpful to be able to take the card that's over here on the corner of my desk, thinking that's really going to be better over here, and move them around and see how they work together. So you're like a sculptor. It really is. If yeah. you think you have this undifferentiated mass of information and what you're trying to do is carve away at it and find shape, yeah, putting things, trying it here, trying it there, until a shape begins to show itself. And I, I like picturing it as something physical. And again, it's a way of getting you away from being scared of writing and thinking, I don't know how to say this. Of course you know how to say it. Now, you've had an experience that not a whole lot of other people have had. First, because of your audiobooks, you've had to read your own work and then listen back to it. How long did you throw up the first time after you start to play some back and listen to it? Oh, well, I hate it. And I actually have never sat through the entire audiobook that I've recorded. because it's agonizing. And, oh, it's awful. It's absolutely awful. And it's also very tempting but not possible to edit <laughs> as you're reading because you have to read the book faithfully. The point is that it's supposed to be the audio edition of the book, not you going, boy, I really don't like that sentence that much anymore. I'm going to so change cheat? it. I sure wanted to, and my producer wouldn't let me and said, you know what, we're just trying to get an audio of the book as it's written. Uh. If you revise it in the future, we can revise it. But I think, first of all, hearing your own voice, no one will ever say that they like the sound of their own voice. I think it's a human impulse, and your own voice sounds different yeah. In your when you're saying it out of your head, it's like uh, out of your mouth. Uh, pictures as well. No one likes pictures in themselves. They don't like the way they look. They don't like the way the way they sound. And they always think that's not the way I sound. But exactly. Everyone else is wrong. Yeah, exactly. You think? Wait, 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 wait. There's a problem. I have a much 
more mellifluous voice, and I don't have that Midwestern accent. Where's that coming from? Um, but it was also a kind of wonderful confirmation that almost all of it felt natural, and it did. Mm. I had succeeded to write the way I talk, and mm. that I do think, unless you're the most boring person on <laughs> earth, and you, God knows, you don't want to write the way you talk. It's what I think readers or listeners respond to, yeah. which is a human voice, a true, authentic storytelling from a, a human yeah. being. But how natural and how authentic was it when you heard Meryl Streep play you in adaptation and read what you wrote? That was an out-of-body experience, literally and figuratively. And when I first went to a screening of adaptation, and I was uh, just, already— just, just to make sure people know, Susan's book, The Orchid Thief, was turned into a movie by Charlie— Charlie Kaufman, uh, directed by Spike Jones, starring Meryl Streep as me, and Nicolas Cage as Charlie Kaufman. Yeah, I was unavailable. I'm and sorry. They, they were begging. <laughs> it was a very eccentric adaptation of the book. I also had not imagined ever that I would be a character in, in the movie, mm. so the whole thing was unexpected. When I walked into the theater to see the screening, and it was an early cut of the yeah. movie, which I don't recommend anyone ever sees, <laughs> because unless you're used to what that's like, it's very disorienting. But to see Meryl Streep open her mouth and say, I'm Susan Orlean, which is kind of her first line in the movie. Yeah, it is. I thought, wait, first of all, n no, you're not. <laughs> and secondly... Someone said that? And it was the strangest feeling. I'm sure there were times when you watch it and listen to it and you thought, that doesn't sound as good as the way I wrote it, or that sounds better than the way I thought I wrote oh, it. Oh, definitely. Um, and sometimes I thought, is Meryl Streep a better me than I am? That would be very, very I think concerning. she has paid more. <laughs> And when she spoke some of these sentences that I had written, they had taken a life of their own. Yeah. And in a very wonderful way, they seemed to rise off the page and, and be a story, a, a living story. And I didn't feel like they were mine anymore. Yeah. It's almost like having a child. It's, they're yours. They imitate you. And then they become teenagers. And suddenly they become something else, but still you. And you recognize them, and you also think, wow, I'm not good at math, and my kid is a math genius. <laughs> well, how, how did that happen? And that's yeah. that moment of thinking. Similarly, people will come away from a story or a talk with a very different experience than you thought you were giving them, and it doesn't make it any less successful. I think there are stories I've written that I've thought were very melancholy and sad, and people will say to me, oh, I really liked your story. It was, it was really fun. And I, I'm always at first taken aback and think, well, that you had the wrong reaction. Later, I think, well, you had a reaction. That is what's important. That's yours. And yeah. the value of, of giving a, 
speech or writing something is to evoke in someone else some response, some emotional response. And maybe it's a different one than you expected. Yeah. Hey, we've been talking about speechifying. But what if what you're writing, or if it's a package that you're sending, what if it has to get there fast? There may not be as many options as you think. But thankfully, there's FedEx. Not sure? Email? Well, not if it's a love letter or a note of condolence. That would be very cold. Scan and send? Well, not if it's a legal document and they require the originals. Post online? Well, not unless it's okay for it to be seen by a couple million other people. Tweet? Only if it's 280 characters or less. Hand delivery? Not possible coast to coast. Uber? Well, not if you had the driver I had last week. So if you need to send papers or a package, there's only FedEx. FedEx gets your stuff where you want, when you want, and to whom you want, guaranteed. And you can track your stuff every step of the way. FedEx. It's affordable, it's fast, and you can put that in writing. You know, when you're writing, sometimes you have to, especially speeches, you have to bring people in. From the two big experiences I had, first with Bill Clinton, the writing room, it was probably the way Saturday Night Live looks. It's like, let's bring everybody in, let's throw, I, I mean, and it's just crossfire back and forth. President Obama was really the direct opposite. I don't think I ever did any of those speeches with him where there wasn't just one speech writer in the room and him and me for the rehearsal. And, you know, he had Favreau at first, then he had Ben Rhodes, and then he ended with Cody. And they're all great writers. But the thing with Favreau, I could never tell the difference between what Obama wrote and what perhaps... John had written, and I remember once we were at a rehearsal, and I looked at the president. I said, "That's a great line," and he looked at me and said, "Nice try." Uh, <laughs> yes. Or I go to Farrow, nice line. And he go, "Uh, uh-uh, that one." And it's funny. I used to get a lot of lines into some of President Clinton's speeches in the eight years I worked. Actually, going back to the convention in two thousand four, I only ever got one word in any of the speeches with. President Obama, and he was looking for a word. And I said, how about sentinel? I said, yeah, I'll use that one. <laughs> ah, that's funny. Well, and I'm sure you remember an incident that my husband reminds me of frequently when we, he and I were working with you at the convention. I was about to set you up for that, my friend. <laughs> it was, well, this was then candidate Obama working on a speech and working, you know, every word he was had chosen and polished. And there was one word, and to this day, I cannot remember. I remember you making a fit about that. Well, I, he, several people had asked him to change this one word. Yeah. And, of course, now I'm forgetting what the word was. Well, it's probably been, because of the Secret Service guy over there. Okay. Yeah, I was out of the room. When this was going on, and it was clear that he was getting a little bit exasperated with the different speech doctors saying, can you change this one word? Yep. Uh, Let's say the word was war, and he was being asked to change it to conflict. Right. It was that sort of thing. It was a mere tweak on the tone. 
So I had been out of the room. I came into the room, and my husband pulls me aside, and he says, can you go up to Mr. Obama? You do And do you see the sentence here? Can you just mention to him, just say, I've read your speech. I really love it. Can we change that one word, war, to conflict? And I said, sure, not knowing that he had been asked to change this multiple times and had was getting really fed up with being told to change it and clearly wasn't planning to change uh -huh. it. And I, you know, just starry-eyed, I can't march over thinking, of course, well, my husband would, I, it didn't even occur to me right. to think, is this a setup? Mm -hmm. So I go over and introduce myself and do the whole spiel, really love your speech. I was just thinking, could you change that word? War, wouldn't conflict be better? And Ouch, he was not happy. And it was very, and in the meantime, my husband's sitting in the back of the room kind of laughing into his hand because he knew the whole thing was Husband's set revenge, up. he got oh set up, pal. Oh my God, it was now, now cruel. Now, the big thing that I threw at you, because I was running the prep rehearsal room and that's also where we did the last minute edits, was, of course, in 2004, the Democratic nominee was John Kerry. And his wife, Teresa, had to give a 15-minute speech, came in for the first rehearsal with, you know, war and peace. And she was an unusual personality, lovely woman, nice woman, unusual personality. And I thought, oh, Susie. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you spent time with her, my friend. I did. What and was that like? You know, it was really wonderful. Yeah. I have to say, I came into it with the presumption that she would be very difficult, that she was going to dig in her heels and be impossible. But immediately I realized that beneath some of her eccentricity and, and brashness, she was a really lovely woman. Interesting, too. Very interesting. And I was pregnant at the time. She loves children, and she was just fascinated. You know, couldn't talk to me enough about... It was so thoughtful of you to get pregnant. Uh, well, I did it us. just for that, yeah. just because I knew it would work well with Teresa. <laughs> and I, I also sensed that she was vulnerable to suggestion, and the problem had been that she had many, many people around right. her calling and saying, can you put in, how about if you put in a sentence about, right. so the speech was very long, containing- Ugapach is a Yiddish word for it. Yes. And, and it was in part not her. It was filled with things that people were calling and whispering in her ear. She had a lot of influential friends who had their own agendas I didn't try to do anything with the speech initially. I, I think my sense was that she felt that there was an antagonism towards her and people weren't taking yeah. her seriously and that it was more important to just begin by saying, I'm not here to give you a hard time or rein you in or be dismissive of your desire to make a statement. Let's just get to know each other first. Yeah. We went to their house. We spent time together. And while I was there, I I witnessed some of these phone calls right. coming in from friends saying, and I won't name names, but associates of hers saying, can you put something in about 
domestic workers. Can you put something in about X, Y, Z? And then we're back into the stew. Yeah. Just stuff. You know, it's funny, those conventions have such pressure because I think there's this Judy Garland thing, which is, I'm going to go out there an unknown, but I'm going to come back a star. And unfortunately, that is the exception and it's not the rule. And they come in with these tomes. And as you know, I put a sign on the front door and the headline says, speeches longer than this or subject to edit. And then I put Lincoln's uh, Gettysburg Address. So 271 words. That's all you get, pal. Anything more than that, up for grabs. Oh, it shocked me how long speech... And I I do a lot of public speaking. Mm-hmm. When they say to me, um, well, we're, we're allotting an hour for your talk, and I think, no, 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 <laughs> you don't understand. Nobody wants to hear anybody... Mm-hmm drone on for an hour. It's a long time to yeah. listen to one person talking. Certainly, there are great professors and people for whom an hour would go quickly. Right. But an audience, and particularly at the convention where they're hearing speech after speech, speech after, after speech, speech, the length of a speech has nothing to do with its power. Obviously, if you get yeah. up and say a sentence and sit down, I mean, you would be remembered, actually, if that is all you did at something like the Democratic Convention. But brevity, I would so much prefer having people say, oh, I wish you had gone on a little longer. Because most of the time, it's the opposite. Yeah. And generally, it's the sign that you haven't really constructed your, your talk in a really solid way, because... It's rare that you need more than... True. I mean, the Gettysburg Address is a model that most of us can't achieve. Mm -hmm. And if you're being paid to give a talk, they'd probably also refuse to pay you if (laughs) it was that short. But I think you never go wrong editing out the flab and giving a really muscular speech that's not You got to leave them wanting a little more. Always have to do it. The other guy who gets, people keep asking, people, my wife, keeps (laughs) asking, why doesn't Aaron Sorkin write political speeches? He's so good. And she always points to the American president or now with Molly's room. And there's a difference between writing a monologue and writing a speech. And Sorkin is really good, but I think they're monologues. I'm not sure they're speeches. I agree. And I'm not a huge fan of that kind of writing for the very reason that it doesn't feel responsive at all to an audience. It feels like explosions of thought and conversation. Well, I shouldn't say conversation because it doesn't feel interactive at all. It feels like billboard, 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 and then the response is another set of billboards right? rather than to me, a speech implies a silent response from an audience that there's a almost as if they, by the way you structure it and the way you talk, you are allowing room for this unspoken response from an audience or the, the, awareness of being listened to. 
We don't get that a lot from the present occupant of the Oval Office, do we? No, he's the ultimate, I was going to say Bristol shave, but I don't think anybody would remember those signs. A little esoteric, remember. Oh, that's right. Do you remember those signs? They barely get they used to be, I mean, this was long ago. Oh, that's right. They'd have a succession like a several billboards. And they were little billboards, and you would drive past them. So they were like, boom, 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 boom. It was maybe six yeah. short phrases on billboards that, you know, ultimately formed a sentence. But then you were, whoop, you would right. drive by it, and that was it. <laughs> well, look, the president does know how to work a crowd when he does those rallies. I mean, you can you can almost feel the temperature rise. You can feel the anger rise. I'm not sure that's always the emotion you want, but you sure do. Yeah. Oh, I think that he, I find it frightening because I think he's, whether it's deliberate or intuitive or accidental, he stirs people up and he stirs up outrage and indignation and it gets people riled in a way that is all negative. But boy, he has trouble if it's someone else's words. If you remember that apology video after the Access Hollywood, I mean, respectfully, it looked like he was a hostage reading the message that was written by his captors. Mm -hmm. And the inaugural address, kind of angry rant. And by the way, there have been great Republican speakers. One guy that I have always felt sorry for George W. Bush got hassled a lot. But if you go back to the speech he gave after 9-11, standing on the rubble, you know, on top of the still some of the the bricks that were smoking from the World Trade Center with bullhorn in hand, that was a nice little moment. Mm -hmm. And it was clearly his emotions, uh, whether someone else wrote it for him or not. I mean, generally, his speech style annoyed me, but that was probably because what the content of it annoyed me. Yeah. But that felt, I mean, similarly, Rudy Giuliani in that same moment, those felt very authentic and moving and memorable. And I guess what it comes down to is the speaker truly believes in what they're saying. When it comes to the voice, there's just a couple of things I tell people to look out for. Number one is people don't use volume the right way. Everyone thinks that it's louder is better. Where actually the change in volume, particularly if it's quieter, is better. Clinton used to love to do this. And I have to tell you, one of my favorite Joe Biden speeches, and if you want to, you can probably still get it on YouTube, is check in his flags out speech, which these were the families who lost a member of their family, a son or daughter, wife, husband, whatever, overseas in battle. And he talked about, I know what it's like to get that call, referring back to when his wife and his infant daughter were killed. And he has that, and it just gets quiet. You can hear a pin drop. And I know what it's like to get that call. And then when people say, I know just how you feel. And you know, they don't have a damn idea how it feels. I mean, just shivers and mm, tears even in, now in, in, a, in a race. When it's coming out of your mouth, do you give any idea or do you give any thought to tempo and to volume and to pacing? All the time. All the time, whether it's something written or something spoken. And in fact, 
I sometimes think it's almost more important in something written because you are relying on people's attention. I mean, when you're writing for the page, every sentence is a battle to keep people's attention. Yep. And I think it's it's a really helpful, even though it's a slightly daunting thing to consider, I think it's a, a really true concern for a writer that every sentence there's a chance for the listener or the reader to say "Mm, not so interesting i think i'm done yeah so the only way to propel people forward is musically really it's it's to speed it up slow it down be punchy be mellifluous right you know you talk about music that's exactly the point clinton obviously because of the saxophone he has a sense of music you don't play da 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 the surprising one is president obama and i think everyone remembers matter of fact i think my wife downloaded the ringtone where he did a little al green at the beginning of one of his speeches by the way the guy has some chops he can sing But I remember we were doing a debate prep, I guess this was in 2008, and one of the lights went out. Matter of fact, it really went out. It it almost fell, so they needed a couple of minutes to change stuff, and the lights were flashing on and off. And he did an impromptu acapella disco inferno. Oh my God, I would have given anything to be there. Had I only recorded (laughs) it, but he was on key. Oh, I, mean, I love that so song, that sense of, too. What now, a combination. The president of our nation singing and Disco, Disco Inferno. Inferno. I'm going to surprise you with a little bit of something, because we're talking about the voice. There is something I do when I work with clients that I don't think I've ever shown you that maybe I can drag you into. Now, I have written on my computer a seven-word sentence. The seven-word sentence is, I didn't say he stole my book. I will turn it so you can see it. I'm going to ask you to read it out loud seven times. But each time you do, I want you to emphasize or stress the subsequent word. So the first time, stress I. Second time, didn't blah, blah, blah. Each time you finish the sentence, pause. I'll make a comment. At first, you may have no idea what I'm doing, but then it'll be very clear what I'm doing. Understand? Yes. Please begin. Ooh, I, I like these kind of exercises. I didn't say he stole my book. The guy over there said it. I didn't say he stole my book. Misstatement of fact. I didn't say he stole my book. I thought it. I didn't say he stole my book. I said she stole my book. I didn't say he stole my book. He took and forgot to tell me. I didn't say he stole my book. I said he stole her book. I didn't say he stole my book. I said he stole my wallet. <laughs> it's seven amazing. different sen- seven different sentences. It's and depending on what I hear you stress, and to a degree how you stress it, you've altered the meaning. That's actually a little warm-up exercise I give a lot of my clients. Before you go out there with the hand dictate machine on your iPhone, to hit voice recorder, do it out loud, play it back, and if you don't hear seven different sentences, go back and do it some more. It's it's uncanny. It's also um a case of being clear about what you are trying. I mean, if you imagine that's written and not yeah. spoken, you have to worry that that's a sentence that can be read seven different ways. Yeah, that's the point. When something is written, 
I have time to sort of absorb and to sort of evaluate it. But when I'm listening to it, it goes by me once. That's it. No slowdown, no rewind. When you write something, you have all these visual tools to communicate meaning. You've got paragraphs, you have punctuation, you have italics, you have underlines, you have bold. When and, you're up there you talking, have context right. um, that will. I mean, because there is no inflection on the page. Right. So you are required to give people a roadmap so that they can read a sentence like that and understand the emphasis. And chances are, you know, there there would be a sentence before that would tip you off yeah. to what is being emphasized. But it still matters enormously when yeah. you have a sentence that can be misinterpreted so right. easily. Right. It, it's almost like a Rorschach test. So yeah, you got to keep them awake. To a degree, you have to keep them entertained, but it's always about meaning. What is the meaning? Two last things before we start to wrap up, my friend. I know you just finished the galleys of a new book. Yes. I, is it bad look, luck I'm, to talk about it? No, I actually now feel like it's good luck to talk about <laughs> it because it's it's uh, going to be out in the world uh, in, rather soon. It's called The Library Book. It's the life and times of the Los Angeles Public Library and the story of the disastrous arson fire there in 1986, which was the biggest library fire in the history of the United States. Mm -hmm. So it really is a, a bit of a love letter to libraries in general and an investigation into this rather amazing and frightening crime that really remains unsolved. But if I know you from all your writing, and I do, you probably take a few side journeys along the way. Many, as a matter <laughs> of fact. It's, so when I give people my elevator pitch for what the book is about, I have to resist saying, and it's also about, and it's also, and, but, and then also, and coincidentally, it's about. And it's interesting that we're talking about this because libraries are these storehouses of stories. Yeah. And the library itself is a story. It, it's full of the people who, who formed it, the people who patronize it, the city it's in. Yeah, it's the anchor of the small town. Absolutely. And no matter what people say about the changing role of libraries in our culture, they're more and more valuable as truly democratic, small d institutions that belong to all of us. They're essentially, if you could have a city park that was all about knowledge and stories and information, that's the library. It's the city park of knowledge. I love it. Thank you, Michael. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics as Unusual. And a big thanks to my guest today, Susan Orlean. Now, if you want to hear more great interviews like this one, be sure to subscribe and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your downloads. Remember, today's broadcast is brought to you by FedEx. It's affordable, it's fast, it's our sponsor. And I'll talk to you next week about putting on eventful events with the living legend of events, Ricky Kirshner. I think the most important step is why are we here? Like, even in an election season, are we here to fire up the base? Are we here to raise money? Are we here to get our message out? There's a lot of different reasons to be here. It's all here on Politics as Unusual.